Welcome to Building Worldviews, the Praxis Circle podcast, where we talk with experts as you shape your worldview. I'm May Lily Lee. These podcasts originate from video interviews you can find on our website, praxiscircle.com. Become a member by registering at the site and subscribe or follow this podcast for our latest episodes. Today, we present the first of a four-part conversation with Anne Bradley, economist and vice president of academic affairs at the Fund for American Studies in Washington. On today's episode, Anne discusses her personal and academic journey and how her Christian worldview has shaped her choices and her understanding of economics. She talks about how worldviews can ignite conflict, yet also encourage exchange of thought throughout the world. Looks like we're rolling, huh? Okay. All right. Well, first of all, we just start off with um, a layup, so to speak, two-foot jump shot. Um, (laughs) If you would, tell me a little bit about your educational background and professional training. Sure. Uh, So my educational background begins at James Madison University, which is where I did my undergraduate work. It's a middle-sized state school in Virginia. And when I went there, I decided I wanted to study economics. So that kind of, I started doing that right off the bat and uh, took a few years off after undergrad, but was pretty convinced I wanted to be an academic and a professor. Uh, So when I was ready, uh, I entered George Mason University and did my combined PhD and master's program there. Um, And from there, uh, interesting story, when I was in graduate school, uh, 9-11 happened. And so I started working with one of my mentor professors on uh, writing about terrorism from an economic point of view. This was his idea, not mine, but I said, sure, let's do this. And I became really enthralled with how economics could help us understand something that seemed so uh, impossible to understand. And so I did my dissertation on the economics of Al-Qaeda when I was at George Mason. So right after graduate school, I went to the CIA and I worked as a... um, uh, an analyst. I was working in terror finance, so we were trying to figure out the movement of resources and dollars amongst terrorist groups. I did that for a couple of years, then went back into the nonprofit and teaching sector. So uh, I work at the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics, where we commission research towards a biblical understanding of human flourishing and economic freedom. Uh, and I also do some teaching at Grove City College. Uh, I teach at George Mason with the Fund for American Studies and I teach at a small graduate program in DC called the Institute for World Politics. So I get the best of both worlds in that I get to do some research and I also get to be in the classroom. And this is one also Dr. Barron didn't want to say anything about. And I I found out why. He would not talk about his personal stuff. Some people do, some people don't. But uh, are there any personal interests or family background you could share anything on, you know, you got the professional side and then anything personal, you may love to snow ski or whatever you want to talk about there. Sure. Um, So interesting when I I live in Northern Virginia, right outside of DC, and I'm actually a Northern Virginia native. So I was born in Alexandria and we've just migrated kind of to the West so we can still afford to live here. Um, And I, uh, so I have two brothers. I'm the oldest and um, our parents have moved out here so they can be near Um, my husband and my children. And so we love Virginia. Um, We love living in Loudoun County. And I have uh, a husband. I think we've been married for almost 13 years now. So that's exciting. And we have two small children, uh, an eight-year-old boy named Parker and a four-year-old girl named Bailey. Uh, And it's just a joy to be raising children. 
Um, I think family life is one of my biggest joys. Um, and that really defines your hobbies and your interests at this stage, but, but I love that, so. Fabulous, and I, this is one of the prettiest places in the world, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, you drive through here, and beautiful. Route 15 is, is also one of the coolest routes. Virginia's anyway. great because you get the four seasons, so you get a yeah. little bit of everything. It's not, really Not too extreme, but lovely. you get enough to, okay. Mm -hmm. um, all right, here's the, here's the question about, you know, growing up, um, or even recently, but what, what people or major events may have shaped who you are today? So who I am today, I think there's a lot of stories I could tell there, um, but I'm going to tell just a few, starting with kind of how I was raised. Uh, raised in a Christian home, and as I mentioned, I have two brothers, so I'm the only girl, and I'm the oldest. And I remember growing up, and I wasn't, you know, I, I ran cross-country and track, but I did it to please my dad because he was a track runner. He never tried to force me to do it, but I just wanted to do it for him. And I was really the worst person on the team. <laughs> so I was never a, a big athlete. I did it because I, you know, I, I wanted to, but I was never going to be great. So my dad and I didn't bond over sports in the same way that, you know, fathers and sons bond. But growing up right outside of Washington, D.C., my dad loved to watch these Sunday afternoon political talk shows, which... I find funny now because I do not like to watch them at all, but growing up, he would turn those on after church if it wasn't football season. And I would watch those shows with him. And we would talk about politics, we'd talk about ideas, and that's kind of the way that I bonded with my father. Uh, so fast forward to when I was in high school, I got this really um, interesting letter in the mail, and it was an offer to go with a bunch of high school students from different high schools, so it would be people I didn't know, to go to five different countries over the summer. It was through an organization called People to People, and I got this. This was just kind of probably a mass you know, letter that everybody got, and I went to my parents and I said, I have to do this, and I remember it was like $3,500. And they said, okay, well, if you do this, then we can't help you get a car. So you have to choose, do you want to go on this trip or do you want to get a car? And this is maybe my only point of wisdom as a 16-year-old, but I said, I, wanted, I want the trip. And that trip, I look back on it now, and it was life-changing in a way that I did not know it at the time. We went to five countries, one of which was the Soviet Union. So when I landed in the Soviet Union, and I saw what it was like to be escorted around Moscow, to be not allowed to go where you're not, you know, officially allowed to go, and to be told that if you trade, the Russians are going to want to trade, they're going to know you're an American because of the jeans and the shoes and the jackets that you're wearing, and if you trade on the so-called black market, you're going to be thrown in a Russian prison. I mean, this was terrifying to me. I didn't understand it. I was, you know, a young kid, and I just... Um, I remember being so happy to be home after that, but being profoundly changed by that experience in ways that I couldn't articulate when I was young. So honestly, I think that was a huge experience for me in young adulthood that led me to become an economist and that led me to be somebody who wants to think about my Christian faith and how that's connected to my deep desire to advocate for free and flourishing society. Because I think I got to see at an impressionable age what it's like to not have any freedom and to live under the threat of oppression. So I think those are, those are big moments that shaped who I am today. It makes sense to me. How about you? Okay. 
who's the guy sending people up in space? All right, this is, this is a question that used to be phrased, what are you passionate about, if anything? But May Lilly says, I don't do passion, I do interest or committed to. Okay, so do you have anything to say about that? I professionally am interested in advocating for a free society. And what that means, I think, for me as an economist, is trying to make the ideas of economics and what I would like to call the economic way of thinking, that's not my phrase, but I think it's an important one, accessible to all of us. Because I really think that we're all after the same things, especially people who call themselves Christians. I think we want to do what we believe God put us here to do. We want to find our purpose. Um, we want to be fulfilled in the pursuit of that purpose. But that is not just about us. So there's one aspect of that that's very personal, theological. Then there's another aspect that begs the question, what type of society must we live in if we are to be free to do to live into our purpose to do what God created us to do. So that's really my passion and I do it by being in the classroom by talking as much as I can about the ideas of economics and really um, grounding them in biblical principles because I think there's no questioning that, right? For Christians, it's what does the Bible say? Um, we believe that it's the truth uh, and what are the principles that inform how we how we live today? That that I think professionally is my biggest passion. More broadly than that, you know, I'm uh, my family life I think is is part of that, right? For me, it's not just being an economist; it's being a wife, it's being a mother, it's being part of my community and my church, and there's great joys and all of that, and that is all very connected uh, for all of us. Fabulous. Well, that's a, a nice. Moving into the, the mission, if you if you'd like to say your paid political ab or paid advertisement for if we, mm -hmm. uh, what what is the mission and work of if we? If that's what you want to talk about, do it. The work of the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. We are uh, an organization that started in about 2011, uh, and really what we're trying to do is start with biblical truth. What does it say in Scripture about who we are? What are we doing here? You know, I always say to people, what does Genesis have to do with life in the 21st century? And that's what we want to do because we want to, we want to reconnect people um, with the truths of Scripture and help them understand how to live that out. So really what we're not trying to do is be policy advocates. We're not trying to tell people what to think about the next tax policy, but we're trying to give people principles that allow them to come to their own conclusions about that. And I think there's real power in that. So part of the initiation of our institute was the real observation over the past 150 years of um, this kind of sacred secular divide that has uh, permeated Christian thinking, which is that God cares about what I do on Sunday. He cares about whether I'm reading my Bible, whether I'm going on a mission trip, whether I'm tithing. But what, if I'm an accountant or a janitor or an economist, who cares? That's just so I can tithe. That's just so I can take care of my family. That's a real dangerous disconnect because God created, if you're supposed to be an accountant, that means God created you to be an accountant. And that means that being an accountant is in, it has value, intrinsic value. So we really want to reconnect and we start with scripture and then go all the way towards, you know, what does it mean to advocate for a free society so that people can do that? As I was telling um, Patrick while you were 
first trying to uh, get the air condition turned off, I said, you know, what they're really doing here is new Christian thinking in the 21st century. Um, so we finished the personal background part. Now we're moving into professional observations concerning <coughs> the wor worldview, mm -hmm. okay? And, uh, you know, one of the things I've found is you can ask very well-educated people if they know the word worldview and they say, oh, sure, sure, sure. It's about your view of the world. But what is it? And they can't tell you what it is. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's part of our, our thing is to get people thinking about the granularity of it. So um, if you were to say that if we had a worldview where Hugh and Art and Anne could sit down and in two to three minutes explain what that worldview is, might have something to do with Genesis. You talked about that in the beginning. Could you give me an explanation of sort of what that worldview would be in two to three minutes? If we conception of worldview absolutely starts with Genesis, and I think there are a couple of basic principles that would inform that broader worldview. One is that we are created in the image and likeness of God, and if you buy that, there's very profound implications uh, for each of us as people, which means that we're here for a reason. But more than that, that you were created in a specific way to do specific things. And there's never been another you. So you, what you're doing is important. So really what we're about is stewardship. Every minute matters. God has given you this combination of skills and talents and intellect and your filter of the world, your observation of the world. And with all those things, you're supposed to do something unique. And when you do that, you are part of reweaving shalom. Shalom, not just meaning peace. That's how we often translate shalom. We mean um, God's redemptive work in the world. So really bringing things back as close as possible to the way they were supposed to be. Perfect shalom won't be achieved until God returns. Uh, so that's really what we're about and that we each have agency in that. We each have a role to play and that our work today has eternal significance. And we don't know what that looks like, but we know it's true. Wow, that's a good answer. Uh, we will come back to that and expand on some of that stuff a little bit later. Um, but that was really nice. Um, all right, now I'm going to shift to the next question about... Um, you know, if you start at worldview thinking, the first thing you got to ask is, are you a theist or an atheist? Are you a, a supernaturalist or a naturalist? That's sort of where people fall into the categories. So I'm going to go over into the other category, and I want to think mostly about America. And you're out there doing conferences and stuff all the time. So, and it's not a high percentage of the population. It's maybe 10, 20 percent, some form of atheism or naturalism or materialism that, that we call atheists. As you think about it, could you give me, um, you know, the three or four categories of atheists in America out there that you see walking around? Can you think of it that way? So most of my interaction is, is you know, I'm asked to go interact on Christian college campuses. So I, I would say in some ways my exposure to atheists on the ground in terms of actually interacting is limited. Uh, now, just because you're on a Christian campus doesn't mean there's not atheists there. Uh, but I think that there's a couple categories that I can um, talk about just in terms of 
observing the conversations that people are having more broadly, you know, outside of the classroom, perhaps. I think one is just this idea of, um, you know, as you mentioned, materialism, which is that, um, you know, there's no agency that's divine. There's, you know, the, the thing that I started with before, we're imago Dei, created in the image of God. If that's true, then there's profound implications for the value of the human person, which in a weird way is anti-materialist, right? Because material stuff can fade away. The non-material stuff for a Christian is important. Maybe it's the most important thing. Um, but I think when you, when you go down the path of atheism that's profoundly obsessed, I would say, with materialism, then that's all the human person is about. And that gets us into these weird policy conversations which have to do with income redistribution, right? Because a person's worth is only revealed perhaps by their income um, because your, your status doesn't, you know, or your value, there's no dignity. So I think that's one aspect of it. I think another aspect of it is really just a postmodern claim that truth is inherently relative. There is no truth. We talk about it now. <laughs> People say, I'm gonna speak my truth. And this is a phrase that drives me crazy because there is no my truth. Uh, there is the truth. Uh, and so uh, I think postmodern atheism is really butting up against that and trying to make the claim that your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. And what that means is that anything goes. There's no rules. So the question is, how do we come into a society and live amongst each other if we're all self-interested, which is a principle of economics, but an observation of people um, when there's no doing any wrong, when anything goes, it's very hard to live amongst each other that way. So I think these are the strains that I find very dangerous. And here's why. They're very attractive to perhaps the next generation because it sounds good to create your own rules. And it almost sounds like tempting to say, I'm a Christian, but if I could just kind of soften some of these rules, then I can have my version of Christianity. So I think the problem is atheism doesn't just stay in atheism and Christians stay in Christianity. That's not what God wanted. He wants us to be salt and light and interact. But what we have to do is be careful that we're not adopting these ideas of postmodernism and atheism and incorporating them into a softer Christianity that kind of just lets us do what we want. And so these are some of the, I think, most, uh, the biggest concerns that I have that could be the most damaging. Good thoughts, yeah. I mean, you could say, this is just an aside comment, truth by definition is not the way they, def they talk about it. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, okay, the next question is, um, so you have said that you do have a lot of exposure, daily exposure, uh, and I would say being in Washington, D.C., international exposure to what's going on <clears throat> in Christianity uh, all over the, uh, let's just say, uh, in the West, okay, Christianity in the West, thinking Europe and, and America, and thinking the denominations, Roman Catholic, Protestant, there is some Eastern Orthodox in the West. Do you, do you see in your broad exposure globally to within the within the West globally? Uh, do you see Christianity growing closer together or going farther apart? Or how how do you how do you, what do you see? I think the biggest trend that we're seeing is people are walking away from church attendance. So I'm going to tie that data point back to your question, which is that 
and I, it, it may go back to, I wanna do things the way I wanna do it. Uh, so the problem with a fractionalized church is that people, you know, you, you have a church, uh, and then you have maybe a group of people in the church that don't like the direction of the church. We might say that's a good thing, especially if the church is doing something that's unbiblical. And then what do they do? They start a new denomination or they start a new version. I'm a Presbyterian. This is happening a lot in the Presbyterian church. And so I think the problem is that people are pulling away and starting their own thing. And so we see these kind of disparate groups among Christianity and what unites them. I mean, can we answer that question in the 21st century maybe the same way we would answer it in 1900 at the onset of the 20th? I don't think so. So I'm a little worried about this. And if you look at church attendance among millennials, it's going down. Uh, people, and that doesn't mean that people, you know, we don't want to judge, right? Maybe they're doing it their own way. Maybe they're reading scripture, but it is concerning. Um, because, you know, I think a church is a place we get discipled by others. Um, and we need to submit ourselves to that. And I think that takes some humility and some submission to what God's asking us to do. So I'm worried a little bit about the future. Um, now, you know, the digital age gives us a lot of interesting ways to kind of consume church in ways that we couldn't 50 years ago. So that might be a good thing. If you're traveling, you can watch a church, you know, um, sermon on TV, or you can listen to a podcast from your pastor. Those are good things. But I do worry about the breaking up of that routine of coming together on Sunday. So, you know, I'm not sure what the answer to your question is, but I don't see convergence in terms of we're uniting around certain core principles, I actually see the opposite, which is when we don't like something in a church, we just start a new denomination. Instead of, you know, what would the alternative have been 50, 70 years ago? We fix it in the church. The church doesn't disband. It's easier to do that now. And I think it becomes more confusing for Christians, especially people who are new Christians. Where do I go to church? How do I even know? Um, to decipher what a Baptist church offers and a Presbyterian and a Lutheran, I got all in my neighborhood. How do I know what they mean? Uh, that's a harder thing to know, and it's very individual to the church. So I think that might be a, a concerning trend. When, when you just getting back to worldviews, this is a section on worldviews, do you, you know that Sam Huntington and uh, the clash of mm -hmm. worldviews theme? Mm -hmm. do, you, do you think worldviews grow together, or do they clash? Or I really like this question. Uh, I, I dealt with some of it when I was working on my doctoral dissertation because I was thinking about Al-Qaeda. Why then? Why that group? What motivated them? What influenced them? And, and part of it was um, this clash of civilizations, right? It's the West is imposing its values. Um, Al-Qaeda is trying to restore the caliphate. It's a clash of ideas, a clash of identities. Um, and that was based on, you know, that's a one specific example of that. But I guess my broader answer to your question is it depends. So when we look at modern global market economies, I think the most profound thing to understand about this is when we trade with Mexico, you know, we give them dollars and they give us bananas. Uh, you're not just trading bananas for dollars, which become pesos, right, in that foreign exchange. We're trading ideas, we're trading values, we're trading conceptions about what it means to engage in a contract with each other. We're exchanging ideas about the value of property rights. I mean, that's a profound and amazing thing. And 
So this is a good thing. I, and I think that economists talk a lot about cosmopolitanism, which is this notion that when we start engaging in trade over goods and services, and we start this engaging in trade of culture and ideas, then we actually have a really neat opportunity to evangelize ideas about property rights, about trade, about people being free, uh, things that we would trace back to the roots of Christianity. So I don't think just because cultures are different and they come into contact with one another that it necessarily means there has to be a fight to the death. But as I said, it depends. So if somebody views a, a culture as being imposed upon them, I suspect there will be a big fight, a turf battle. But in the global age that we've viewed over the last 100 years, but even more specifically the last 50 years, we're engaging in all sorts of cultural and idea exchange. And it's exciting because what we're seeing is that more places in the world are adopting property rights, you know, these bigger ideas of economic freedom that we think are so important. Those are spreading. And we want that to happen as much as possible. So I don't think it always has to be a clash. Your own, your own worldview has influ influenced how you live your life. Can you, and it may be too personal of a question, that's the last one on worldview, but do you have any comment on that? How has my worldview influenced my personal? How you live your life, just oh, kind of day to day or, or, or. Yeah, so let me talk myself through that a little bit. I think, um, if you have a worldview that you believe is absolutely true, it should influence your daily life and your choices. What does that look like for me? I, I can tell you one, just from having small children, it influences every aspect of how I'm raising them. And it's a very countercultural thing that we're saying, which is that you can't be anything you want to be. That is a lesson I'm teaching my kids. This is not what the Disney Channel teaches my kids, right? It teaches them choose any, it's just like, you know, you're looking at a menu of career choices and you say, I want to be X, you know, I want to be a doctor because doctors get a lot of prestige and they make a lot of money. That doesn't work like that. Why do I not believe it works like that? Or why do I believe it does not work like that? Because God created us in a very unique and specific way. So I think that's one way that it influences daily decisions, which is how am I raising my kids? I'm raising them to believe that God created them for something specific. And the best way to live a fulfilling life is to live into that and not listen to what the culture tells you, which is get the biggest number of zeros on your paycheck or be as famous as you can be. Because when you try to do something that's counter to how God created you, you're gonna be frustrated. And I've experienced this in my own life. In fact, my time at the CIA, which is what everybody gets excited about on my bio, I was miserable. It was not the right job for me based on my skills. I don't, I'm, I'm not, you know, I don't regret it, but it wasn't the place for me to be long-term. And so I want my children to think about that. I also want my children to believe that they have a responsibility on this earth. They don't, nobody owes them anything just because they're here. And I think that is part of my economic way of thinking and my biblical way of thinking, which is that um, people have a great capacities to serve their neighbors and to love each other and to create great wealth. But we need the right setting to do that. And so I want my children to advocate for that uh, in their future lives. You've been listening to economics professor and author Anne Bradley on Building Worldviews. Anne is Vice President of Academic Affairs at the Fund for American Studies in Washington. 
Listen to episode two, where she delves into creation, the benefits of self-interest, and how entrepreneurs serve society. I'm May Lily Lee. Thanks for joining us on this podcast conversation with Ann Bradley. Subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to podcasts and visit us at praxiscircle.com.